Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. All right. So I had this uh, fellow email me last week, said, hey, Pastor Rob, really enjoying Faith Bible Church. Would like to sit down and ask you some questions. You want to do lunch? I was like, buddy, there's two things I really enjoy talking about. Faith Bible Church, and I really enjoy lunch. You have my undivided attention. I can talk all day about God, the Bible, church, philosophy of ministry. You know what people are into based on what they like to talk about. I'll tell you crazy stories all day long about my family, my wife, and my sons, and hunting deers with cars, and all our crazy adventures. I can ramble on about end-time prophecies, all how the current events align, and I'll even sprinkle in some conspiracy theories for you. And if you let me, I'll talk your ear off about basketball. Some of that stuff you might find really interesting, and some of it you might find completely boring. My wife finds the basketball really boring. But if you want to learn what I'm into, what I think is important, you just have to listen to me talk. And that is true of all of us. The things that we constantly talk about are the things that we find important. And that is also true about God. The things that are important to him, he says a lot about. There in the first five books of the Bible, there are 46 chapters devoted to explaining the tabernacle and the worship that went on there. And since God devoted so much of his inspired word to talk about it, we have to conclude it's kind of a big deal. So let's see if we can pay attention to some of these details and figure out why the religious facilities and the furnishings of the tabernacle are so important to God. So guess what? We're in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, starting at verse number 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there is a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a gold jar holding manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherub of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater, more 
perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and through the blood of, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Four, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For almost 500 years, the tabernacle served as a place for God to dwell among his people in the Old Testament, a place where his people could come and commune with him. Through Israel's history, they had this propensity towards idolatry. So the tabernacle stood there as a visual reminder to Israel that they served a true and living God. The structure and the service that the temple showed to a sinful people was how they could come to God for worship and service, how they could offer a sacrifice for sin, and how they could receive instruction and counsel from God. The tabernacle was a graphic portrayal of God's redemptive program for Israel. Every aspect of the temple, from the bronze altar where the sacrifices were offered to sin, to the mediating high priest who offered the sacrificial blood on the mercy seat, pointed to God's redemptive plan for mankind. This fact is beautifully typified in the ministry of Jesus Christ who left his home in heaven and tabernacled with his people. That's what that word means. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we beheld the glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So everything in... And everything done in the tabernacle in the Old Testament is a type of Jesus Christ's ministry. What is a type? When you type on your computer, you input symbols, letters, and they represent words, where words have meaning, and they can have multiple meanings at the same time. And so can pictures, and so can objects. This is our of course, our national flag, the stars and stripes, symbolize something. I could bring Dr. Blizing up here and give us a whole lesson on that. Everything on the flag has meaning, and the flag itself has various means various things to various people. All around us, we see lots of symbols that communicate elaborate ideas. And we, too, as Christians, we have developed symbols that when we see these things, we know there's an elaborate theological teaching behind all of them. So that's what we're looking at here. Everything in this temple, in this tabernacle, everything done in the tabernacle is all a type of Jesus Christ's ministry. So typology is a special kind of symbolism. When we say that someone in the Old Testament is a type of Christ, we're saying that that person behaves in a way that corresponds to Jesus' character or actions in the New Testament. So what's an example of that? Okay, well, Moses, when he leads the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, 
and leading them to the promised land. He's a type of Jesus who leads us out of the slavery of sin and towards the glorious, eternal, promised blessings, right? The, uh, when we say something is a type of Christ, we're saying that an object or an event, so it could be a person, but it could also be an object or event in the Old Testament is viewed as representing some quality of Christ. For example, the lamb that was killed in Egypt and the blood was put on the doorpost of the homes so that when the death angel came in for the final plague would pass over and not kill everybody. We say that that is a type of Jesus when he was sacrificed and his blood cleanses us from our sins so that we too, death will pass over us and we can have everlasting life. According to Hebrews chapter 9, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, of the tabernacle, is all a type. So here's an artist's rendition of what is being described, the tabernacle. So first we have what is the uh, wall. It's, it's like tents, you know, canvas wall. And so then there's, it's separating it from the whole big camp of Israel. And then there's an outer court where out, things were done outside within the outer wall, but still outside. And then there is the tent structure there that we also call the tabernacle specifically. And then that has two specific rooms in it. So the outer court, it, sectioned off outer area, has two pieces of furniture. Do you know what they are? There's the bronze altar, and then there is the bronze laver. And that's a, we use that French lave is to wash. So the laver is a big basin of water that they washed in. And inside the tabernacle tent itself, it's divided into two rooms. One room is called the holy place, which was 15 feet by 30 feet, and then 15 feet high. And then, not to be confused, there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. So there's the holy place, 15 by 30, and then the holy of holies, which was smaller, was 15 by 15. It was a square. And then within that tent, there was different pieces of furniture as well. So in the holy place, the bigger one, there's the table of showbread, uh, stood at the right side of the holy place, 12 loaves of bread on the table. They were a meal offering representing 12. That's a, we recognize that symbolic number. 12 pieces of showbread symbolizing 12 tribes of Israel. The showbread also is a type of Christ who is our, Jesus said, I am the, the bread of life. So that's a type of Christ. And when we do our Lord's Supper, he says, this bread is my body broken for you. The, also in the uh, holy place is the seven-branch golden candlestick providing the light to the tabernacle. Jesus is the... Is it over here? It's up here? Aha, there it is. The light of the world. Boy, I'm glad we have our banners today. They really are helpful, aren't they? I am the light of the world. Also, the third piece of furniture in the holy place is the altar of incense, stood in the holy place just in front of the veiled holy of holies. Coals from the brazen altar were carried in and placed on the altar of incense, over which incense was poured daily, and the smoke from the incense curled upward and represents, according to Scripture, the prayers of God's people. 
we see these prayers collected in the book of Revelation before great calamities are poured out on the earth. We'll read up on that at another time. Also, between the holy place and the holy of holies, what was there? The veil separating the two standing stands for the separation between a holy God and sinful people. And then in the holy of holies, one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. Stands on top as a covering. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant's mercy seat are two angels, two cherub, who are facing each other, but looking down at the mercy seat with their wings stretched out. And it was on the mercy seat that the high priest sprinkled the blood on the Day of Atonement, which enabled God to cover the sins of the high priest and the people. So let's zoom in on these items and see how they were used. Let's move back outside to the outer court, and I'm going to give you some pictures. I drew these. No, I did not. This is the bronze altar, the largest piece of furniture used in worship, always open to all guilty Israelites for them to atone for their sin. The brazen altar was where you provided the sacrifice. So somberly, the Israelites brought a prescribed animal offering without spot or blemish to the priests. They stood at that outer tent wall and with the tabernacle gate to offer them. The offerer would lay their hands on the head of the animal, symbolic of their identification with the animal's substitutionary death on their behalf. They're identifying with their hands on the animal and they're transferring symbolically their sins onto this animal and the animal's life is being transferred back to this person. And then the offerer slit the animal's throat and the high priest, the priest would catch the blood in a, in a basin. And then the, the priest would take the blood to the bronze altar and put the blood on the altar and on the fire and then dump the rest of the blood in here in a basin that was at the bottom. And then the priest would cut the sacrifice, sacrifice up into pieces. They had a, a whole elaborate washing of the parts. And then they would burn the various pieces on the altar as a offering to the Lord. And some of you are thinking, that's kind of like a, a large barbecue, isn't that? I mean, to be honest with you, it kind of looks like a great big cookout going on there. And they actually did eat the meat off of that too. So that would have been good. The fire that burned continually on the altar had a twofold meaning. It proclaimed God's holiness and justice, and it was symbolic of his readiness to receive the sacrificial offerings to cleanse the people of their sins. The position of this altar spoke of access and fellowship with God because it stands inside the outer court facing the door of the tabernacle. Before the priest could pass to the tabernacle, they had to make the blood sacrifices on the bronze altar. With his hands splattered with blood and his feet soiled from the dust of the tabernacle odor court, the priest would move quickly but reverently to the bronze laver for cleaning. The words of Moses were fresh in his mind each time he was called to serve. Exodus chapter 30, verse 20. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. Purification before and during the service in the tabernacle was mandatory for the priests ministering before God. So this bronze laver was never used by the congregation. It was exclusively for the priest for purification. Having been 
Cleansed by washing with the bronze laver, the priest reverently made his way a few feet forward towards the tabernacle tent entrance. With anticipation, he carefully drew back the heavy curtain of the tabernacle and entered into the holy place. Light from the huge golden candlestick lampstand fills every corner of the holy place. It was part of the priest's ministry to care for the lampstand. The lamp was to be kept perpetually burning. The lampstand was filled with pure olive oil, and the priest trimmed it every morning and every evening using golden tongs and golden snuff dishes. And the purpose of the lampstand was to provide light. As we said, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So the golden lampstand typifies Christ who lights up the walk of every person who believes in Jesus today. The holy place had no windows. No light came from the outside. And the light of the holy place was hidden from the world. Only the priests had the privilege of enjoying that light. Today, as Christians, we are to be reflectors of Christ's light to a lost and dying world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We might think of the golden lampstand also as representing God's word. As the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Next, we have the table of showbread, a table that was overladen with gold and the vessels on it were pure gold. The dishpans or the bread pans made to carry the bread into the holy place. And then there was incense cup filled with frankincense, which were poured on top of the bread and burned on the altar of incense as well. The bread on the table, 12 cakes of bread arranged in two rows of six loaves each. And the 12 loaves, as I already told you, represented the 12 tribes. And they were brought in every Sabbath. The bread was fresh every Sabbath. The show bread, as we already said, typifies Jesus. I am the bread of life. And this is my body, which is broken for you. Then we have the altar of incense. The priest would offer sweet incense on the golden altar. He would take a censer full of burning coals from the outer court brazen altar in one hand and then prepare some sweet incense in the other and then ignite the incense by sprinkling them over the burning coals on the altar of incense and then a thick cloud of smoke curled upwards, filling the tabernacle, symbolic of the Israel's prayers. These were actually the prayers coming in, the 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 all the blood that went down uh, from the sacrifice onto the coals. Here's here's the people's offering of, of, please forgive me of my sins. Lord, I have failed you. I have broken your law. I sacrificed this. And then it's collected up in the coals and then it's brought into the holy place and put on the altar before the holy of holies. And then the smoke is symbolic of their prayers that were said out here. It's now brought in and now it's filling the whole tabernacle, these prayers. And um, then these uh, prayers we also learn are, uh, are standing in the heavens before God. They go all the way up. But still, we talked about this veil, this multicolored embroidered, it has the embroidery of a cherub on it, uh, protecting, guarding the presence of God and separating. The word veil literally means to separate. So it described his purpose. The barrier between God and man. God is shut in. And man is shut out in this covenant, this old covenant. Then we go inside. Well, we can't, but inside the Holy of Holies is one item. What is it? 
The Ark of the Covenant, it symbolized God's throne, His presence. And so it made it the most sacred article of furniture in the tabernacle. It was accessible only to one person, the high priest, and only on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. It's a rectangular chest made of wood, covered in gold, inside and out. The lid is called the mercy seat. On top of the lid are the angels with their wings touching and facing. And then inside, Hebrews tells us something's inside the ark. What's in there? This pot of manna, golden pot. Then there's Aaron's rod. And then there's what? Two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. So what is this pot of manna? Remember when the folks, uh, the nation of Israel first went into the wilderness and they're in a wilderness, right? So what is there to eat? Nothing. And whatever food they had that they got in there, there's roughly about, they, uh, scholars estimate, like maybe two million people in this entire nation that went out there. And uh, so they're out there in the wilderness and whatever food they had gets eaten up real fast. Imagine like you got, you know, sons, they eat a lot of food, nothing there. And uh, so they're starving to death. So they pray. And what does God do? He sends in the morning, they come out of their tents and all on the ground is, what is it? I know, but what's manna? What is it? That's literally what it means, right? <laughs> That's what that word means. What is it? And it's, it's sort of a white, wafery, tastes like honey. That's what it was. And they could collect it and they could store it for how long? Just one day. They could get enough for that one day. And what happens if they try to keep it and have leftovers the next day? It all goes to worms and rots, right? So it's gross. So it's not going to last. It's your daily bread. And Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So you have to come to God new every day, every morning, and receive his blessings and receive his word. That's an important principle that we learn there. So they had the, the pot of manna, and that was this, to remind the people of God's provisions. And we always provided. Uh, Paul called it spiritual food. And Jesus himself said, I am the true bread from heaven. Also, that we have Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod that budded. What was going on with that rod? Anybody remember that story? So we had these uh, rebels the the guys, what was their names? Oh, I wrote it down. Now I gotta walk over here. I was gonna tell my story and I walked away. Korah, Dothan, and Abram. And he they gather 250 rebels from all the 12 tribes. And they're all upset at Moses and Aaron. And they're like, who are you guys to be in charge of us? And who made you? Well, we know who made them the leaders, right? But they're they're rebelling against Moses and Aaron, and ultimately they're rebelling against who? God, right? But they have rallied enough people. They got a real revolt going on there. So God tells Moses, here's how we're going to settle this. I'll show the people. I'll give you a sign. Every tribe is going to give one rod. What's a rod? Just a wooden stick, right? It's just something there. Everybody had walking sticks back then. So there's going to be one rod from every tribe, and you'll write the name of the tribe on it. So we're going to write Ephraim on this one, and we'll write Judah on this one, and Benjamin on this one. And then Aaron's rod is from the tribe of Levi. So Aaron's rod says Levi. Take all the rods and we're going to put them in the tabernacle at night. And whatever, and the, whatever rod blossoms, 
is the one that God has said, that is the high priest from that tribe. So they put all these dead sticks in the tabernacle, and then guess whose rod blossomed? And not only did it blossom, what did it grow? Full adult almonds, all in one night, blossomed and grew almonds out of a dead stick. And that was a miracle. And that was God's way of saying that Aaron has the right to be the high priest. And then lastly, what's in that ark? Two tablets of the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. Of course, the first two, what happened to them? They got smashed. That's another whole story. We won't get into that. That'll be another for another time. But then it was, they were re, re-given and they were in the Ark of the Covenant and then the, uh, the cherub were on top. So that's a basic rundown of the tabernacle and kind of the processes of what went on in there. So it says, going back to Hebrews chapter 9, <laughs> and it said, we, we read the different things that were in there as he listed them, verse 4, uh, the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and then the gold on that. And then it, within it, the manna, Aaron's rod, the covenant, above the cherub, verse 5, of glory overshouting the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, he says. We can't speak in detail. Why not? Well, because I already told you, there's 46 chapters and the author in this letter does not have time to go through all 46 chapters and give all the meaning. And nor would he have needed to because his audience, the Jews, were very familiar with all these activities. Everything that happened, that was part of their culture. But the author wants to make a point. So here's the point, verse 9, verse 6. Now when these things have been so prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the seconds, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people that committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit signifies this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. So all of the various priests tended to the light and the bread and the offering, the incense on the altar and the cutting of the animals up and barbecue and all that. But they did this. When did they do this? Every day. Every day, nonstop, all day long as Israelites, because there's 200, 200 million of them, right? And they come in there, 2 million of them, and they are offering sacrifices all the time. But according to the law... Even the priest can't go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest and only once a year. This is the thing he's pointing out here. Verse 7. Now contrast that to what we've already learned about Jesus' ministry as the high priest. Look at chapter 7, verse 26 as a review. Chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. The author says, For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest holy, Innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up the sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered himself. Look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the main point in what is being said is this. We have such a high priest who's taken his seat 
at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Jesus doesn't have to make sacrifices repeatedly. He did it once for all time and eternity. And Jesus stays in the presence of God and he sits in the throne where? The tabernacle where? In heaven, always making intercession on our behalf. And here it says in, the, in uh, chapter, chapter 9, verse number 8, that the way to the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Disclosed, the Greek word there is phanereo. It means to make visible, to make known. So the author is pointing out that the way into the Holy of Holies is not known, is not visible, it's not given to us in this first tabernacle. Now whether you realize it or not, this is the greatest problem we all face. Since the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were banned from the Garden of Eden, separated from God, separated from His goodness, blessings, His loving kindness, that is our greatest problem. Lots of people go through life. They don't think much about that. They don't perceive that to be too much of a problem until chaos of life hits them, until they're in big trouble and they really need some divine intervention. They really need salvation, but they're separate. We saw this with Noah. He builds this ark for 120 years. He's preaching a man of righteousness, preaching about uh, this coming flood. And what did everybody do? Ah, oh, they just mocked him and they made fun of him. But once the ark was complete and Noah and his family went in and the door was shut by the hand of God, the floodwaters came suddenly and then all of a sudden, let us in, let us in. And nobody could get in. They were separate, separated from their only means of salvation. And Jesus in the New Testament talks about how people at the end of their lives, they want to get into the kingdom of heaven, but they're shut out. No access granted. Last January, Eliana and I experienced being denied access. We had planned a trip to Europe. We had all of our accommodations set up. We bought the tickets. The only thing we had to do before we get on the plane is just get our little COVID tests, and then we could be on our way. But I'm sure you remember last January, there was a big spike in COVID, and everybody in St. Mary's County ran over there to get a COVID test, and because of that, we couldn't get tested in the window that we needed to get our test back in time. We went, it wasn't long enough, and we were sitting at the airport with our little phones. Oh, maybe they'll send us our tests, and they'll let us on the plane. And we sat there with our bags, our little tickets in hand, and our little phones out, and the call never came. And at the time the flight took off for Europe, we were sitting there in D.C., access denied. When you, and no refunds given for those flights, by the way. <clears throat> when you miss a deadline, a due date, you know, it could cost you a grade, maybe an opportunity, an important occasion, cost you some money. That's very disappointing. Being shut out of the kingdom of God is going to be more than disappointing. It's going to be catastrophic. It's going to be your doom. But it doesn't have to be because Jesus says that he is the way 
He is the door. He was the sacrifice that was made on our place to pay the price of our sin. His body was broken and offered up on that altar and his blood washes all of our sins away. And then he is the high priest who takes that sacrifice past the outer court into the holy place, to the holy of holies. He is the light in the holy place and he is the bread of life. And everything there symbolizes what he has done for us. The coals from the brazen altar mixed with the incense of our sacrifices of faith and praise our prayers and proclamations that we make in Jesus name and he brings them and he offers them on the altar of incense and it fills the court in where heaven and then we learn then the authors of the four gospels tell us that when Jesus died on the cross the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, God himself ripped that thing in half because now the access is there and the separation is no longer necessary. And the author of Hebrews repeatedly tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Consequently, he's able to save to the other must those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In the first tabernacle, in the, the old covenant, you couldn't, it did not disclose the way into the Holy of Holies. But in the new covenant, instituted by Jesus Christ, we have total access to God. And the only reason why you don't have that is because you don't want to accept it. You don't want to believe it. But he tells us here, that this whole thing, the outer courts standing, verse number nine, it's a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This symbol, what symbol? The tabernacle and all that was going on in there, all that was being done in there. It was all just a symbol of what was going to go on in heaven. So that right there answers our opening question. Would you don't remember what that opening question was, do you? Why these religious facilities and furnishings are so important to God that he would give 46 chapters detailing them in the books of the law? Because they symbolize, they told the Old Testament Israelites the story of what the Messiah was going to do and they were going to have faith in those promises, faith in that covenant, and they would be able to have hope of eternal life. But what was being done on earth in that old covenant, in that old tabernacle, it was just physical. It, it, it wasn't going to get them into the temple of God in heaven, but it was all just an act telling the people what was going to happen. It was just a little act but so much more was going to happen than what was just going on in that 15 by 30 tent. And then it did happen. It all played out just the way the story was telling them. It all played out on the grand stage in the highest heavens. Christ appeared as the high priest, verse 11, of good things to come, entered through the greater perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not this creation, and not through the blood of goats or calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, obtaining eternal redemption. 
Now we clearly understand all that the tabernacle stood for and all that those sacrifices symbolized. And the most shocking part of that whole process was that the sacrifice was who? The Son of God Himself. As, as, as much as you guys didn't like hearing about, oh, well, they cut animals and bled them out and chopped them all up there. Oh, that's so poor little lambs, right? When it came down to it, it was God Himself coming in the flesh so He could sacrifice His body and shed His own blood to take away the sins of the world. Verse 13, here's the logical point. Four, if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkled for those had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. So that worked for the, those guys at that time. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? One of Hebrews how much greater arguments? He makes these repeatedly. If the blood of sheep and goats and bulls could appease God's wrath and the punishment of Israel's sins for one year, how much more the blood of his son cleanses us. That's the perfect sacrifice because Jesus was perfect, sinless, son of God. Nothing greater could be offered than God himself laying down his life in our place. And even though we didn't know him, Jesus knew us and loved us and died for us. Verse 15, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is what God is continually talking about. All through this holy word, he's telling us about his plan to bring us back to himself, restoring to us fellowship, even making us the sons and the daughters. You're not going to get a better offer than eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God, a co-heir with Jesus Christ, for now God has adopted us into his family. And all you have to do to receive this promise is just accept it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that his death paid the price of your sins and ask him to forgive you your sins. I don't believe in God or heavenly temples or blood sacrifices. What? Really? Do you believe in death? because that's coming for all of us. And then what? You miss that deadline of accepting Jesus before you die, and then you will stand there in that heavenly court in your sins by yourself without the mediation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest. I have lots of sin. I have lots of guilt. And I need a Savior. And... So do you. We have been told what happens and what is happening in heaven. And we've been told what will happen once we die. God's been talking about this for 3,500 years. The question is, are you listening? 
Lord Jesus, we pray that we would open up our hearts and minds to pay attention and listen to you, listen to what you've been telling us through symbols, through items, through objects, through processions. You showed us what was going to happen, and then, Jesus, you came and did it. And history records it, that you came and you lived and you died and you rose again, and you've told us what that means and where are you at and what you're doing. And if we believe in you, that we too one day, you have gone to make a place for us, to prepare a place for us. And Lord, we pray that each and every soul, each and every life that's here would trust in you. Tell the truth. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know that. I have done things wrong. I have shame. I have brokenness. Please forgive me. Please heal me. If we would utter those words, believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, your word says you will save us. It's your covenant, Jesus. May we all believe it. We pray this in your name. Amen.